Welcome to Watchmen on the Wall, a daily outreach of Southwest Radio Ministries and SWRC.com. As we begin a new week together, staff evangelist James Collins has an encouraging reminder from the Old Testament, and Jerry Tyson has a Bible in the News Report. The prophet Hosea's life was a living illustration of the unconditional love of God. On today's program, James Collins teaches from the life of Hosea and Gomer in a message called, God Loves the Unlovely. I remember watching Barbara Smith care for her husband, Carl, in his final months of life. A year or so earlier, my friend Carl had been diagnosed with amyotrophic lateral sclerosis, or ALS, a progressive disease of the nervous system that affects nerve cells in the brain and spinal cord, causing loss of muscle control. The disease is often called Lou Gehrig's disease after the famous baseball player who died from it. ALS is a horrible illness. The motor function of the central nervous system is destroyed, but the mind remains fully aware until the very end. ALS drained the life from every muscle in Carl Smith's body. I was amazed at the love that Barbara showed as she attended to her husband. She did for him what mothers do for infants. She bathed, fed, and dressed him. Night and day she tenderly hovered over him. If she complained, I never heard it. If she frowned, I never saw it. What I heard and what I saw was someone who kept their promise to love in sickness and in health. This is what love does, her actions declared as she shaved his face, washed his body, and changed his sheets. Love is an action verb. In other words, love is shown in deliberate action. That is the same love that God has for you. Today, most people are filled with many romantic illusions about love. They believe that love has nothing to do with our will. Instead, we are just overwhelmed by love and we follow whatever course it leads. But the Bible teaches that love is largely a matter of the will. And when we direct ourselves to love someone God tells us we must love, it can and will happen. That is why we are not in love anymore is not a valid reason to end a marriage. In the book of Hosea, God used the relationship between Hosea and his wife Gomer as a living illustration of God's love. Now, why any parents would name their daughter Gomer, I don't know, but that's her name. Each time I read her name in the Bible, I'm reminded of the character on the Andy Griffith show. Do you remember Gomer Pyle? Shazam! Golly! Surprise, surprise, surprise! But don't get sidetracked by her name. I seriously doubt Gomer looked anything like Jim Neighbors at all. But anyway, in the story, Gomer leaves Hosea to go after other lovers. The Bible teaches that the way Gomer treats Hosea is a picture of Israel's treatment of God. Just like Gomer was unfaithful in her marriage, Israel was unfaithful to God. The Bible says that unfaithfulness to God by his people is considered by God to be adultery. The Bible also says that Hosea had every right to get a divorce. He could have said, it's over. She cheated on me, so I'll just go my way and she can just go hers. But that's not the way that God loves. 
Instead, God told Hosea that his wife was in town being auctioned off as a slave and that he should go pay his hard-earned money to buy her back. God told Hosea to take his wife back and to love her. The relationship between Hosea and Gomer is a picture of God's love for Israel. Regardless of how Israel rejected God, he never stopped loving them. That's the theme of the book of Hosea. But there's another theme in the book of Hosea. It's a message that speaks to us today. It's a message of unconditional love. It's a message that shows God loves the unlovely. As we look at the life of the prophet Hosea, I want you to notice that his story speaks of relationships. God used Hosea's life as a living sermon to speak about relationships, specifically the relationship of marriage. Chapter 1 opens with God telling Hosea to get married. Normally that would be a good thing, but God tells his prophet to marry a prostitute. The Bible doesn't sugarcoat it. She was a whore. She offered sex to men in exchange for money. Soon after they were married, Gomer began to have children. God tells Hosea to give his children very unusual names. The firstborn is named Jezreel, which means the valley of destruction. The second child is named Loruamah, meaning no mercy. The third kid is given the name Loami, which means not my people. God tells Hosea to name these children in such a way to describe his current feelings toward his people. They had turned their back on him, and they had been unfaithful. So God is about to bring destruction, have no mercy, and as far as he was concerned, they were not his people. Now, it seems at first that Hosea had a good relationship with Gomer. However, somewhere along the way, she returned to her old life of prostitution. She abandoned her husband and family. She became unlovely. The Bible doesn't tell us why she left. Perhaps Gomer thought like many people do today. Maybe she thought, I deserve better than this. I deserve to be happy. But here's the truth. We don't deserve to be happy. We deserve hell. But Jesus came to save us from hell. God didn't give us what we deserve. And marriage isn't about what we deserve either. It's about commitment. One day a young man came into my office for counseling, and as we talked, he said, I just don't love my wife anymore. And I looked at him and I said, well, go love her. He didn't understand that love is an action verb. He looked at me and he frowned. Then he went on to say that he was no longer physically attracted to his wife. And as I listened to this young man, I came to understand that he never really loved her. Instead, he lusted for his wife. And today, many people marry for lust. Sadly, physical desire fades. If you marry for lust, it's likely you'll end up divorced. Instead, marry for commitment. Aren't you glad that God doesn't love you the way some people love their spouses today? Well, not only is Hosea's story a story of relationships, it's also a story of redemption. After Gomer left, Hosea's days were filled with taking care of their three children. His nights were filled with loneliness as he reached for her on the empty side of the bed. And then one day, news reached Hosea that the woman that he loved was about to be auctioned off as a slave. The Bible tells us in Hosea chapter 3 that Gomer was on the auction block. In the time of Hosea, there were three ways in which a person could become a slave. First was by conquest. An army could invade the land and take you captive and make you a slave. 
Second, you could be born a slave. Your parents were slaves, and you were born into slavery. Third, you could become a slave by debt. That's what happened to Gomer. She had become a slave because she couldn't pay her debts. So they were going to auction her off to pay that debt. Gomer is a woman on the auction block because she has a debt that she cannot pay. It's a debt so large that she's unable to satisfy it. Left to herself, she's a slave. Left to herself, she's doomed. Now, in those days when they auctioned off a slave, it was a humiliating experience. The slave was stripped naked and put on a platform for everyone to see. All her clothes were removed so that the buyers could see the merchandise. I want you to understand that not only is Gomer a picture of unfaithful Israel, but she's also a picture of people without Jesus Christ. If you've not received Christ as your Savior and Lord, she's a picture of you. You've run up a debt that you cannot pay. You're a sinner, and you owe a debt for your sins. There's nothing that you have or nothing that you can do that'll satisfy that debt. Just like the woman who stands there naked before everybody in town. You stand naked and condemned before a holy God. You're stripped bare, doomed, and hopeless. What is it that moves Hosea to leave his house when he finds out that his wife is on the auction block of sin? It's love. There was unconditional love in his heart. And ladies and gentlemen, that's the nature and the heart of God. God loves you in spite of your unlovely sin. Can you imagine the scene? Hosea was walking through the streets toward the auction. People were saying, I heard about your wife. I heard she got what she deserved. I bet you're going to go there and have the last laugh. I bet she regrets the day that she left you. As he drew closer, I imagine Hosea heard the voice of the auctioneer. The auctioneer said, we have a woman here. Her name is Gomer. Her profession is a prostitute. Is there anyone willing to pay the price? Understand that Hosea didn't owe a debt, but he had the 15 pieces of silver and the half bushel of barley to pay the price. Gomer didn't deserve to be paid for. She didn't deserve to be redeemed. She didn't deserve to be set free. Imagine that scene for just a moment. Imagine Hosea bearing the indignity of entering a crowd of men gazing at his undressed wife. If that was not enough, he also had to bid for her. One man yelled, five shekels. Another shouted, six. Hosea screamed, seven shekels. Another man bellowed, eight. Hosea screamed, nine. The man shot back, eleven shekels. Hosea cried, twelve. The other man yelled, thirteen. Hosea didn't have much left, so he raised his voice, 15 shekels of silver and a half a bushel of barley. The auctioneer said, sold to the highest bidder. Imagine Hosea helping his naked wife down from the auction block. I imagine he took off his robe and he put it around her. Then he spoke to his wife. We see what he said in Hosea 3, verse 3. And I said unto her, Thou shalt abide for me many days. Thou shalt not play the harlot, and thou shalt not be for another man. So will I also be for thee. It's as if Hosea is saying, I brought you back because you're my wife, 
because I'm committed to you. No matter what you've done, no matter how far you've fallen, I still love you. I paid the price so that you and I could be together. You're going to be faithful to me, and I'm going to be faithful to you. There comes a point in the life of every sinner where you're on the auction block of sin. You are doomed. The devil says, I've got you, and nobody can pay the price. But look, through the crowd comes one named Jesus. He says, I will pay your sin debt. He says, I will robe you in my righteousness. Jesus paid the price to redeem you from the chains of sin. But he did not redeem you for you to go out and play the harlot anymore. He redeemed you so that you could live as a changed person. And Christ demands your faithfulness because you were bought and paid for with a high price. You were bought and paid for with his precious blood. And on the day that you put your faith and your trust in Jesus, the chains fell away. You're not a slave anymore. You're not a slave to the devil. You're not a slave to sin. You're not a slave to cocaine or Jack Daniels. You're not a slave to pornography. You're not a slave to the love of money. You're not a slave to pride. You've been set free. You've been set free by the glorious grace of God because Jesus paid it all, and he paid it in full. He paid the price in spite of your unlovely sin. God loves the unlovely. So the story of Hosea and Gomer is a story of relationships and redemption. It's also a story of renewal. If you read the rest of the book of Hosea, chapter 3, you'll notice that Hosea gave Gomer no condemnation. He just said, I want you to come home, and I want you to be with me. He just put his arm around her, and he said, I've forgotten about the past. And that's exactly what God is saying to the Christian who's fallen into sin. It doesn't matter who you are. It doesn't matter what you've done. God says, I'm right where you left me. If you'll come back, we'll start all over again. God forgets all about your ugliness, and he loves you anyway. God loves the unlovely. Get a copy of today's message by James Collins by calling 1-800-652-1144. That's 1-800-652-1144. Jerry Tyson, the host of our new podcast, In the Beacon's Light, is here with a timely Bible in the News report. Today's headlines in light of Scripture, helping bring clarity to the world around us, It's Bible in the News.
I wonder how well we would have done if we had tried to write something about 160 years ago that would be put under the microscope of scientific analysis available to us today. It might be safe to say we would have been found to be just a bit off in our assumptions and projections. We could belabor the point with examples, but for now, let's point to just one. Jules Verne was a writer of science fiction, or more correctly, fantasy stories, and in 1864 used his imagination to write about his characters, Otto Lidenbrock and his nephew Axel, along with their guide, going to Iceland to find a volcano whose name I will not attempt to butcher here. Their goal was to use the dormant volcanic tubes to descend to the middle of the earth and explore. We know the story as Journey to the Center of the Earth. Fern's story has them coming upon prehistoric animals and having fanciful adventures, say nothing of perils. Fortunate to still be alive and not cooked in lava, they finally return to the surface in southern Italy through the Stromboli volcano north of Sicily. Hmm, Stromboli, that makes me hungry. If we were to put it to the test of true science, the story would not fare well today. While his concepts of what would be found in the Earth's interior were quite a bit off the mark, it still makes for an interesting story. Imagination is a good thing, and thankfully, many who have a good ability to imagine have provided us with many hours of enjoyable reading, whether science fiction or just a reality-based, made-up story. When we turn to the Bible, we are not dealing with science fiction. We are dealing with fact. Despite what many of our friends who have fallen into the trap of some of these false cult religions that abound today may believe, there are no references to any scientific, geographic, medical, biological, or other field of focus that can be pointed to in the Bible that is incorrect. There have been a good number of them that were considered suspect, but it turns out that each was a case of man being a little slow in catching up with the truth of the Word of God. Geology has been an interesting area of focus over our recent lifetimes in what we call the Holy Land, where science, physical locations, and historic persons have proven the Bible to be true as the archaeological digs have found one artifact after another. It was Gerardus Mercator, a Flemish geographer and cartographer, who in 1569 drew a projection of the round earth onto a flat plain. He kept the linear scale equal in all directions, even though that distorts the proper size of the continents and the islands. But it was helpful to navigators as they planned and executed their journeys at sea. One fascinating little tidbit comes to light when looking at a map of Mercator's projection of the earth. Jerusalem is at the approximate center of the earth. Draw a line from Jerusalem to the southern tip of Africa, and in round figures you will measure 4,700 miles. Measure it to the end of land mass close to the magnetic North Pole in Canada, and it will be a little over 4,700 miles. 
If we measure east to west from Jerusalem to the eastern end of Russia at the international dateline, we get 5,550 miles. Go the opposite direction from Jerusalem around the earth to Tin City, Alaska, the westernmost point of the mainland, and it is nearly the same number. One of the interesting aspects of directional travel is that if you go either north or south, sooner or later you will be at a point where your direction changes. When you reach the top of the earth, if you keep going, you're now headed south. The same concept holds once you get to the South Pole. Keep traveling and you'll be going north. If you head east, you will be headed east forever without a conscious change of direction. Likewise, for the western-bound traveler. Other than being a fact of the natural world, it gives us a picture of God's mercy toward those who have trusted him. As we read in Psalm 103, verses 11 and 12, For as the heaven is high above the earth, so great is his mercy toward them that fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far hath he removed our transgressions from us. Luke 13:29 tells us of the redeemed ones, and they shall come from the east and from the west and from the north and from the south and shall sit down in the kingdom of God. Over and over again in scripture, Jerusalem is set apart as a special city in God's plans. It has been in the past and it surely will be in the future seemingly to help us to get an idea that it is an important location wikipedia tells us that jerusalem is a city that has been fought over 16 times in history during its long history jerusalem has been destroyed twice besieged 23 times attacked 52 times and captured and recaptured 44 times it should be no surprise that Jerusalem is held high in light of Psalm 69:35. Jerusalem has a hope your city or mine does not have. For God will save Zion and will build the cities of Judah. 153 times Zion is mentioned in Scripture. Many of the references are not good news, drought, famine, enemy attack. One after another, there are warnings and declarations of judgment for the times God's people turn their backs and go into apostasy. Many more of those times are good news, referring to God's special love for Jerusalem. Maybe we can get some hints of the importance of Jerusalem, often called Mount Zion, from a few select verses. Psalm 2, verse 6, Yet have I set my king upon my holy hill of Zion. Psalm 9:11 Sing praises to the Lord which dwelleth in Zion. Psalm 14:7 Oh that the salvation of Israel were come out of Zion. Psalm 48:2 Beautiful for situation the joy of the whole earth is Mount Zion on the sides of the north the city of the great king. Psalm 76:2 In Salem another word for Zion, also is his tabernacle and his dwelling place in Zion. Psalm 102.16 begins to give us a hint of the reason Jerusalem is central in so much of Scripture. When the Lord shall build up Zion, he shall appear in his glory. 
There is still a future for Jerusalem, no matter how many times it may be attacked by Satan's allies. Next to the Psalms, Isaiah has the most references to Zion, and this one is interesting. Isaiah 28:16. Therefore, thus saith the Lord God, Behold, I lay in Zion for a foundation a stone, a tried stone, a precious cornerstone, a sure foundation. He that believeth shall not make haste. Isaiah 35.10 triumphantly declares, And the ransomed of the Lord shall return, and come to Zion with songs and everlasting joy upon their heads. They shall obtain joy and gladness and sorrow, and sighing shall flee away. Isaiah 60.14 goes so far as to call Jerusalem the city of the Lord, the Zion of the Holy One of Israel. No other city can make the claim of being God's special place on earth. The prophet Joel stated in Joel 2:32, And it shall come to pass that whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be delivered. For in Mount Zion and in Jerusalem shall be deliverance, as the Lord hath said. Again, Joel tells us in chapter 3, verses 16 and 17, The Lord also shall roar out of Zion and utter his voice from Jerusalem, and the heavens and the earth shall shake, but the Lord will be the hope of his people and the strength of the children of Israel. So shall ye know that I am the Lord your God, dwelling in Zion, my holy mountain. Then shall Jerusalem be holy, and there shall be no strangers pass through her any more. Zechariah 1.4 says, Cry thou, saying, Thus saith the Lord of hosts, I am jealous for Jerusalem and for Zion with a great jealousy. God used Zechariah to give this good news of his future Messiah, giving a hint of how Jesus would come at the start of his ministry in chapter 9, verse 9. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, thy king cometh unto thee. He is just and having salvation, lowly, and riding upon an ass, and upon a colt the foal of an ass. Well, these verses will suffice in making the point that in God's thinking, Jerusalem is at the center of his plans for the future and ultimately for the new Jerusalem as well. How interesting it is that Jerusalem is literally the center of the earth's surface geographically. In the Resource Center today, we have a brand new book by Answers in Genesis founder Ken Ham. Divided Nation, Cultures in Chaos, and a Conflicted Church. Divided Nation provides families and their churches biblical mandates to awaken and arise as influencers in today's turbulent times. As Christian persecution increases, the body of Christ needs to prepare to take a bold stand. Can the church regain a position of influence among this generation of truth seekers who reject God and His Word? Divided Nation shines an empowering light on the struggle of the church to retain young believers. Glean from it the issues that must be addressed and find clarity amid the chaos of the culturally conflicted church. 
Get this powerful book, Divided Nation by Ken Ham, for you, your church, and your family. Divided Nation by Ken Ham is available today for a gift of $18 or more when you call 1-800-652-1144. You can also order online, swrc.com. Tomorrow, we open the radio vault for a classic program featuring Noah Hutchings and Hal Lindsey. Watchmen on the Wall is a production of Southwest Radio Ministries and is supported by faithful listeners like you. Visit swrc.com.